Hello, everyone. Welcome to the world's most fantastic podcast, most cosmic irradiated podcast. It's Uncanny Tracks covers Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four run. I am Bob in Cascadia. That is Matt in the Southland. Matt, how are you doing tonight? I don't know, Bob. I've just taken a trip to four different cities. You're becoming an urban tourist in uh, this edition. So for our listeners, we're talking about the second volume of Hickman's FF run. It goes from issue 575 to issue 578, just four issues. The overarching story is called Prime Elements. So any other uh, lead-off thoughts about your uh, urban tourism, Matt? That's a fun little adventure, Bob. Very yeah, different from yeah. X-Men. Also, in some ways, a little bit of an introduction to the Fantastic Four, quote, universe, unquote. I mean, we see four very different dimensions of antagonist or places that the FF encounter very often. You're taking a field trip to see what the Fantastic Four is all about. Yeah, as the FF continues to accumulate kids, uh, this will have a lot more field trip energy as that keeps going. All right, Bob, so let's break down these issues. All right, our first issue is number 575, Abandoned City of the High Evolutionary, Prime Elements Part 1. Matt, what goes on in this issue? Mole Man calls upon the Fantastic Four to help him stop the abandoned city of the High Evolutionary's effect on his moloid subjects. Matt, what are your memories of the Mole Man? All I really remember about the Mole Man is from the cartoons. It's about it. Then it's really weird because the Pixar animated movie, The Incredibles, is essentially a Fantastic Four movie. And yes. at the I- end of that film, a character comes out that's the villain. So he calls himself the Underdweller. It looks almost I identical mean, it, it, to Mole Man. Is it weird, or is it a Pixar committing to the pastiche? It's Pixar committing. Disney owned Pixar, but didn't own Marvel at that point? Yeah. Okay. Were you uh, appropriately grossed out when we've talked about the FF just picking up children? So we have uh, a moloid, and uh, they just uh, pop the head off of the uh, moloid. The other moloids do because the head survives. Was, was, that, was that gross for you? Yeah, I didn't know they worked that way. It's very, very creepy. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess last kind of orientation question. Um, are you familiar with the High Evolutionary? Uh, much more now thanks to the uh, X-Men animated series coverage because there was an episode where we were introduced to the High Evolutionaries. Uh, Initially, when you said this, I was like, he wasn't on the X-Men the animated series. And I'm going to have to go figure out what you're talking about. And I'm going to have to explain the High Evolutionary, who I don't have a great understanding of. But then, Matt, I went back and looked. And no, you were right. I was wrong. The High Evolutionary was in the second part of the uh, Savage Land two-parter. So I'm the moron. I'm wrong. I'm the one who apparently doesn't know the High Evolutionary. Matt, you should take a victory lap. Um, that's really all I know about the High Evolutionary. <laughs> oh, his action figures currently uh, are warming the pegs at Ollie's. He's a dude who wants to evolve things. Uh, that's pretty much his deal. So he hangs out at Mount Wondegore a lot. I don't have much else to say about him. I do really enjoy this background gag in Dale Eaglesham's art in this issue where Franklin and Val are taking care of the severed but still speaking head of the moloid. Like they they get it like a plate that floats around and they put a bubble on top of the plate. It's very cute. All right. So are they treating it more like a pet or a toy? I would say they're treating it more like a friend, Matt. (laughs) All right. Teach his own, Bob. I I feel like you're going to regret that comment as we go go further and (laughs) the, uh, the children become... In some ways, very important parts of this run, and in some ways, not very well developed, which is one of the interesting things about this run. But does the head 
continue to travel with them? Well, yes. I guess we'll get to see or if I'm right in my assumption that they're treating it like a pet. I think they're going to treat it like a friend. And if I recall in the in the future Foundation run right after this, by Fraction, the Moloids get more personality in that, if I recall correctly. Oh, okay. So, Matt, uh, another visual here that was pretty striking is the dead Galactus from the future that Reed has buried underground that the FF and the Mole Man kind of pass as they're heading towards the city of the High Evolutionary. Uh, that's from the same Mark Miller and Brian Hitch run, and it's involved with New Earth that we talked about last time. And again, we're really hitting the limits of Bob's knowledge this episode because I don't know that much about the High Evolutionary, and I haven't read that Miller run of FF, and I'm probably not going to. So yeah, it's it's a dead Galactus from the future. That's all I got. That was definitely one of the cooler visuals in this volume, seeing the dead Galactus laying there and you're just not used to seeing them dead. One thing I thought was kind of interesting in this issue, Matt, have you noticed that Jonathan Hickman likes to write about monarchs? That's kind of his thing, isn't it? Maybe to put it another way, because the Marvel Universe is a fantasy that was mostly thought up of in the 1960s, it's going off a lot of old science fiction and fantasy tropes where everybody's a king or something, right? Right. And so Hickman in some way, and we'll definitely see this a lot more as like Namor and Black Panther become more important in this run. But Hickman really does like try to write monarchs with the pomposity and grandosity and maybe reactionary political views that monarchs yeah. usually have. We see that with the Mole Man here. And so the Mole Man is arguing with Ben that he doesn't want his moloids to be evolved by the high evolutionary's technology. And it's creepy and it's very much, oh, they're my children. I keep them safe vibe. But it is also fascinating that the mole man does seem to have a point because the evolved moloids don't seem happy and they do turn pretty brutally eugenicist after they evolve with leaving the children out of the city when they don't manifest the evolution. Well, more, more power, more problems. The Hickman run is very focused on Reed, but you do have to give this props uh, to this issue for Johnny, Sue, and Ben all having good stuff to do. Johnny's blasting through the earth. Sue's using her fields to protect the ship. And Ben has the heroic moment where he jumps underneath the, the city of the High Evolutionary to save uh, what remains of the abandoned, uh, unevolved Molloy children. That was great, and the art here is fantastic. Just really cool to see all their powers being used in that way, and... Not in the typical Johnny shot fire at something. We, I think, both incline more to talk about writing than art, but we should underline again, Dale Eaglesham's doing the art on these four issues, and he's doing a hell of a job. Speaking of art, Matt, did you have uh, any thoughts on Ben's temporarily evolved monkey look from him? Did it make him smarter, or was it just meant to be visually entertaining? I didn't really notice any difference in his personality. I, I didn't notice any difference in the personality either. I think it was meant to be um, a visual gag. And it's funny because when it first happened, did you think he was like going to be like stuck like that for five issues or something? I kind of did. Yeah, I thought this is what they're going to go for, and now he's going to have to deal with this. Is going to be Ben Grimm's whole arc here, and that dealing with this evolved, dealing with being evolved. But it, it went away after the issue, so I think we're good. It's funny, uh, given how casual uh, Ben is about the whole thing. Yeah. Well, the man has spent 575 issues, more or less, as a rock monster. So, you know, what's a slightly different form of being a rock monster, I suppose, right? He's he's pretty cool about it, especially if he got it just trying to save kids. I think he's fine with that. 
And it's also it's kind of funny how chill Reed is about it. He's like, yeah, it's only going to last 90 minutes or whatever. Yeah, it's just a normal thing. Just evolve temporarily. A lot of times people do like to do Thing Wolverine team ups. I do think those characters do have a similar vibe. The most awful things can happen to them and they're blase about it. Yeah, they've been around long enough. They've... And between the things, cosmic evolutions, and between Wolverine's healing factor, they're not that worried about anything. Right. All right, Matt. So uh, maybe the most exciting thing to debut in terms of uh, Hickman ticks, uh, we have the return of Hickman text pieces for these four issues. Were you stoked uh, that you had to read a page instead of uh, look at the art and read a page? This is an obvious area where Hickman has improved tremendously. The text pieces here are more like bullet points of stuff that you couldn't fit into the issue. <laughs> Whereas I feel like the ones in X-Men, they're usually, if you're reading a letter to someone, or you're reading the specific uh, blueprint or plans for something coming up, or uh, there's a There's diagram. more of a graphic design, or, or like you say, a diagram. Whereas here, it's just some bullet points, and a lot of it is stuff that... You're going to have to imagine happen between the pages. He's just telling you certain things that they didn't want to have to go through the trouble of or really weren't worth drawing out or showing in the visual piece of the comic. That's what I got from these. Did he start doing these here or was he doing them before and something else? These are all good questions. Uh, to answer one that's kind of implicit in what you said, I, I can't remember what the future trajectory of text pieces is in this run. I can't remember if they're a regular thing here on out or if it's just something he occasionally comes back to i'm also not sure if they get more visual as the run goes or if they stay more text oriented so that would be my the answer to one of your questions you raised you don't know and, like when did he actually start doing this though like adding these oh, text elements uh, he's been doing that since the beginning uh, his first comic from image is called the nightly news it's very text-based or rather, it's not just text-based. It has a lot of visuals and illustrations, as I remember. Uh, the Nightly News is not my favorite comic, but it is, it is an interesting one that's worth reading. That's always been one of Hickman's gimmicks. Uh, and also, definitely... So, The Nightly News is his first comic for Image, and then there's a second comic, the name of which is escaping me, but it's about time travel. In both of those, Hickman does the art, too, and he does some drawing, but it's a lot of computer images being manipulated. I know those first two are not to everybody's taste. I think it's... Pax, Pax Romana. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's Pax Romana. And for a while, there was talk of a sci-fi network series of Pax Romana, but it never came to pass, as far as I'm aware. After that, for stuff like transhuman and red mass from mars and red wing which were his other early miniseries for image mm -hmm. i think he gets other artists for those but yeah he uses diagrams visuals text pieces and hickman i think was a graphic designer before he was a comics writer well that makes a lot of sense i feel like this is like bare bones though this part compared to what he did in x-men well i will defend it a little bit here because i I do appreciate the way it like expands the scope of these issues. I, I find that a pretty useful thing, and I wish more more comics would do stuff like that more often. But to one other aspect of your question, this is his second big Marvel run. His first big Marvel run is Secret Warriors, which mm -hmm. is a, a book about superheroes working for Nick Fury. It's pretty good. Um, it's not my favorite or anything, but it's pretty good. Uh, maybe we could talk about it somewhere far down the line. 
I want to say that there were text pieces in it, but I can't say that definitively. I don't actually remember. So maybe this is the first time he's doing it at Marvel. It's definitely not the first time he's doing it in general, but maybe it's the first time he's doing it at Marvel. It's actually one of the things I look forward to in the X-Men comics. So it's a it's a really cool concept. To move on to issue number 576, Matt, it's called Old Kings of Atlantis. Do you want to give our listeners the plot of Old Kings of Atlantis? So the Fantastic Four go to protect an Antarctic research station they sponsor from AIM and discover the three kings of Old Atlantis under the ice. I do really like when FF stories focus on them being explorers or them dealing with Star Trek-like plots. It makes them stand out more, and this has been the problem that all the Fantastic Four movies have run into. They can come across as just another generic superhero team, but if you're doing more exploration-based stories or more like Star Trek-type stories, the uniqueness of the team stands out a lot better. This is where I really felt the uniqueness of Fantastic Four as compared to X-Men in this issue. This is the one. This is the issue I'm like, oh, okay, that could be different. I felt it a little with the birthday issue last volume. Just because of the, the whole family aspect and the little kids and everything. Like, that's a whole different dynamic to me than I'm used to seeing X-Men. But here, they're going on an ex- exploration. The X-Men usually don't do that. They're usually, you know, they're fighting something or they're going from point A to point B. They're not exploring, with the exception of the recent desert thing. But even that's... It's because they're exiled there. Right? There's usually them being pushed somewhere, whereas opposed this is them actually exploring something to learn. And that would be the other theme or the other topic that makes the FF stand out is there's family elements to like teams like the Avengers and X-Men, but the FF, the entire team is a family. You were saying last week with the birthday issue, you can explore that. And that also gives them some distinctiveness from X-Men, Avengers, and what have you. So Matt, did the old Fantastic Four bits of Johnny pranking Ben, I guess in this case, it's him tipping Ben's chair. Uh, did that make you laugh? And likewise, did he? Him uh, having a swimsuit on in Antarctica, did that make you laugh? Yeah, I'm glad that after 60 years, that's just still funny. Because they've done these gags before. This isn't anything new. We've seen Johnny in a swimsuit in the cold. I know I have at some point. Oh, you have? Okay. It didn't ring a bell for me, but I, as we've established, I forget stuff. Ben just joking around. That's that's normal. That's the usual. The Ben and Johnny prank war has been there almost, not since the beginning, but since very close to the beginning. Yeah. All right, Matt, did you enjoy We have nearly 12 silent underwater pages in this issue, Um, and especially since the issue felt pretty talky at the start, even talkier than a normal Hickman comic, I thought it was an interesting contrast going from that talkiness to the silent underwater stuff. It really made me feel like I was taking a journey, because the whole first part of the issue is Invisible Woman explaining what they need to do, and then there's this, okay, now we're going to go do it. So there's not a lot of talking in the actual piece where they're exploring underwater and getting to where they need to be. That's the kind of thing that a lot of these issues fall into in this collection where you'll have Sue or Reed or Val explain a scenario while while Johnny and Ben only half pay attention. That's yeah. a pretty familiar formula. Matt, in this issue, they're talking about Namor's Atlantis being destroyed. We're having old Atlantis under the Antarctic, but... Namor's Atlantis was destroyed in a 2007 Submariner comic. That detail, while I know it was stated in the comic book, not knowing that threw me off a little bit. I can feel that, but on the other hand, Matt, don't read that Submariner I'm, mini. I'm not, I'm not, not planning good. on it. Do you want to run down who uh, the three old kings of Atlantis represent? We've got the uh, fish workers, we've got the eels, and we have the crabs, and each one of them is a different cast. 
the Fisher laboring caste, the eel a bureaucratic or administrative caste, and the crab a warrior caste. Well, interesting. There's a whole new world we've been introduced to here, Bob. It does have a little bit of a Disney movie vibe to it, doesn't it? Like we said, Hickman does enjoy exploring monarchs and caste systems and things like that in, in his work. So it is pretty funny that Sue has to, in effect, become the queen of the humans to speak to the three old kings in a way and on terms that they will understand. It does recall Storm becoming the queen of the solar system after the mutants terraform Mars into Araco, and Storm starts regularly talking as a representative of both humans and mutants to the various galactic monarchs. I'm starting to see some trends and some patterns in Hickman's writing. Sue says she has to become humanity's spokesperson, and I could see three reasons for that. One, uh, she's the only member of the FF who's both intelligent and sociable. Then the second would be, uh, you can imagine Namor will not be pleased with this, and uh, he always has had a special regard for Sue, so she might be the only one who can pacify Namor about this threat to his rule. Or it... Uh, you could also see it a little bit. The humans need to tweak and acclimate these old sea kings to women having public roles. They don't say, but you get the feeling the sea kings might be a little misogynist. I, I went with the first one in my interpretation, is that she knew that Reed wouldn't be able to handle that. Johnny and the thing for sure couldn't be in that role. So she took it on herself. Then the whole Namor thing as well. I'm, I'm I'm just saying, introducing the concept of gender equality to the old uh, fish, crab, and eel people is a good strategy. <laughs> and then you find out they're asexual. <laughs> curses. Curses. Issue number 576, it's Universal Inhumans. Do you want to run us through the plot of Universal Inhumans? The Fantastic Four return to the blue area of the moon to discover that the Kree haven't just made Inhumans through genetic experimentation, but in Centurions, Ibadun, and Chameleons, and Indie Wraiths. Hickman never uses these terms. He just calls them like the universal inhumans. But to me, it's just right there. If the humans are inhuman, shouldn't the centurions be in centurions and the badoon be in badoon? Speaking of somebody taking joy for something, I really do enjoy Ben's enjoyment about getting to pilot a rocket back into space. That's a nice little moment. It's almost like they redid the visual of them taking off in the original Fantastic Four when they were humans yeah, going yeah. into space, but here they were already yeah. in their outfits. I think that's a pretty common reference point across Fantastic Four runs. Matt, how familiar are you with the Inhumans? I, I felt like the issue does a decent job describing their origin from Cree genetic manipulation. So they were exposed to the Terrigen mist, is that correct? Yes, but it's the the Cree manipulated some human genetics a long, long time ago. And then when those manipulated humans or some of their descendants come into contact with the Terrigen Mist, it's when the inhumanness is activated. Does that make sense? Kind of like the Tar in Young Justice. It is interesting that, unless I'm forgetting something, this issue really stresses the Cree genetic manipulation, which was a known thing in the comics already, but it does not stress the Terrigen Mist as much. How familiar are you with the Kree and the AI that rules them, the Supreme Intelligence or the Supremor, as he's sometimes called? I know all about the Kree because they were in the MCU all over the place. The, the next species, Matt, are you familiar with the Centaurians? Yondu, that's the only one I know. That's the only one I know, too. So, the yeah, blue. tall tall blue guy. <laughs> controls an arrow through whistling. <laughs> Had you ever heard of the Badoon? 
I don't have a clue. I'm not super familiar with them, but they show up um, as a minor enemy alien species in a lot of Marvel Cosmic comics. The only thing I've read that ever really has gone deep into them is... Have you you didn't read like the first modern Guardians of the Galaxy comics, the ones from around like 2007 that that had the team be in its more or less in its movie configuration? You never read those? No, I didn't read any of those. On the one hand, they're pretty good. On the other hand, they're basically all tie-ins to larger Marvel cosmic crossovers, which makes them a little difficult to read. Okay. Um, also, they have a you know the office g- gimmick of like having characters like talk to a documentarian it does that but in a comic and it's not great okay but in, in anyway in that series the badoon are prophesized that they're going to become one of the major empires in our local group of galaxies in the future that's the badoon i don't know much else about them and then matt we talked about the chimelians last week do you remember who the chimelians are yeah, i remember from that from the conversation we had about the power pack they're the uh horse aliens space horses who empower the power pack then if i say the dire wraiths you're probably not going to remember them but do you remember an evil alien species that appeared in some x-men reprints we had as a kid where mohawk storm gets shot by forge's anti-mutant gun do you remember that i vaguely remember that comic yes but the dire wraiths like i can't picture what they look like and i keep thinking of paw wraiths from deep space nine they're shadowy uh, figures in, they're not a main thing, but they're in those few X-Men comics around like Storm losing her powers. It's been established that they're genetic offshoots of the scrolls, that, they, that they're shapeshifters and they've been manipulated to separate from the scroll. Do you know Rom Space Knight? No, not a clue. He wasn't around when we were reading, but he was like a toy that Marvel got the license to publish in the 80s. And so they did a big, like, 75-issue series that a lot of people remember very fondly. And the diorates are the villains in that ROM Space Night series. And it's one of those things where it's Marvel doesn't usually have the rights to ROM, but they have the rights to the diorates and the other Space Knights. And so ROM hasn't appeared much in Marvel Comics since, but the diorates and the Space Knights have. I Google ROM Space Mar- Knight. I recognize the robot-looking dude. He was a toy. I remember oh, that. You do recognize him. From okay. a million years ago. Old-school 70s toy. I, I said 80s, but probably late 70s, early 80s would be more accurate. Marvel does have the rights to ROM back, and they're doing reprints now, and maybe they'll bring him back into the, the universe in a limited way. Although, maybe not, because they'll just lose the rights again at some point, you know? Eight-part Disney miniseries. Just a general observation about these three issues. I like how over the course of them, each one becomes less and less a story. Yeah, it's like it reminds me of X Men. Not um, as, not as easy to follow, but not. It's not bad. It's just harder to figure out exactly what's going on. It makes you think more than what I'm used to with reading comics. Any other any other remarks about the Universal Inhumans? No, nah, I've got nothing else for this one. But we do have our third right. city, because we've, we've already covered two cities now. We're in our third. We're getting close, because remember, uh, adult Franklin's prophecy to Valeria was a war of four cities, right? Yep. Let's talk about that fourth so, city, Bob. Issue number 577, Cult of the Negative Zone. Matt, what's the plot of Cult of the Negative Zone? So Johnny's date goes wrong, and he rashly dives into the negative zone, only to discover the prophesied fourth city. 
Yeah, I'd really love that Johnny is basically at a Lovecraftian cult nightclub. It's a club of people who worship, I think, Annihilus and worship the Negative Zone. And Johnny just doesn't notice at all. Walk up in the club and there's a dude up on stage with a big minus sign tattooed on his forehead with a big minus sign behind him. Don't know what's going on here. <laughs> Matt, I, I, I feel pretty confident in saying you remember the Annihilus and Blastar uh, action figures, right? That's exactly what I remember. I don't know who they are as characters, but I remember them as action figures because I feel like the Fantastic Four animated series, were these characters actually on that show or are they just pumping out action figures of these characters? I'm pretty sure they were, but I could be wrong. But I'm, okay. I'm, I would say I'm like 75% sure they were. Yeah, Annihilus had like wings and looked like a green insect creature, and Blastar was a big gray monkey looking man. They're both uh, highly associated with the Negative Zone, which is basically the Fantastic Four's version of the Phantom Zone, but less of, although it tends to even be more psychedelic than the Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zone in Superman comics just tends to be like gray and dour, whereas people tend to illustrate the Negative Zone with a lot of a lot more kind of like psychedelic black light art. There are indigenous creatures to the negative zone, which is not as common in the Phantom Zone. Although if I'm remembering right, it's maybe Annihilus is indigenous uh, to the zone while Blastar comes into it and rules part of it later. But maybe I have that mixed up. Okay. Are these tied in any way to Mr. Negative? Uh, I have not much familiarity with Mr. Negative because I've never played the game and i've never read because he as far as i know he f doesn't show up till the dan slot comic run which okay. is around this time uh, so there could be but i wouldn't know yeah, i think he may have ties to the negative zone somehow but I, I don't remember off the top of my head maybe it's a source of power for him that could be cool even if he isn't somebody should make him tied to it <laughs> let's do it guys let's write that bob so i really do love in this issue that we have val debriefing johnny the smartest member of the team talking to the dumbest member of the team and Val does love her uncle I just she has, find her, that super she has her little iPad with a question she has to ask she's like reading <laughs> on a college level at three is, is, is the human torch literate I mean that's yeah. a serious question is he literate I don't know <laughs> uh, we have the war of the four cities beginning in this issue as Namor issues a challenge to the old kings uh, would you like to read Namor's challenge to the old kings of Atlantis Mount? who are you to call yourself kings who calls himself king that has never felt the sun on his face that cowers under the ice at the bottom of the world. We also have the uh, Universal Inhumans begin to attack the city in the negative zone. Did you like how this issue shifts from introducing the fourth city to starting the War of the Four Cities? Or were you frustrated because we, we aren't really told very much about the city in the negative zone in this issue? We just know it's there and it's bad and Johnny saw it. They didn't do a good job of showing us the negative zone city. And explaining what it really is. They will say more about it later, but I also think it's a deliberate strategy of Lovecraftian or the Forbidden yeah. City or the, the the player in the fighting game who has a question mark over him. I guess we'll learn more as we go on. I felt like we were more introduced to the other three than this one. This one we had the least. We oh, we definitely were. We definitely yeah. were. Well, and it it does make the point that there is there's an interesting kind of trade-off in these issues and i'm not saying this is like a criticism of them i think it's just generally a trade-off in making comics in that the first three aren't so much stories they're just introductions to the cities yeah. whereas the fourth one is more of a story but it has to scrimp on being an introduction to the city shall we go ahead and move into our categories matt sure bob so uh favorite visual my favorite visual was in the final issue where there's the creature that's coming out of the girl johnny meets at the club 
that nice. is insane. That was very creepy. It gave it a very kind of insectoid Lovecraft feel yeah, to the like issue. Literally, like, she was a skin suit, and the bug was taking her off. Whereas yours was gross and uh, scary, mine is gross and charming, I thought. There's a big panel in uh, the first issue we looked at, 575, where a moloid in the background of the underground is just grilling mushrooms, and then other moloids are riding giant ants. It almost had a smurf quality to it that I really liked. Yeah, that's disturbing. Matt goes with this, the disturbing. I go with the cute. Matt, what's your favorite line of dialogue? All right. Favorite line of dialogue, Bob. Uh, Wayfinder, an issue with the humans. He goes, we are his people, a tribe unto ourselves, the universal and humans. And then Ben Grimm's response is, oh boy. The reason I chose that is because it's straight out of Quantum Leap. That's what Sam would always say at the end of the episode. Interesting. When he would zap into the new, whatever ridiculous situation he was in. That's funny. That's funny. My favorite line of dialogue was Johnny talking to Herbie. You remember Herbie, Matt? Oh, yeah. Herbie. Little robot. Herbie's the robot who replaced Johnny. And I think it was the 70s Fantastic Four cartoon because they were worried about kids setting themselves on fire. It's Johnny narrating to Herbie the events that led up to Matt's favorite visual, which is to say... Johnny goes to bar. Johnny gets girl. Girl turns into bug monster. Bug disappears through hole. Johnny never kissed bug. I'm going to call that a win. What's Shoot. your favorite issue of these four? Where there is water and life lived in it, there are giants, which is the Atlantis trip issue where they go to Atlantis. That's a fun one. The silent sequence is really cool in that it one. I, cool. I do have to give it up for that one. I'm going to give it to the negative zone one, which I feel like was your least favorite, right? Pretty much, yeah. It's probably my least favorite. I, I'm going to give it to the negative zone. Partly, I'm more comfortable with gaps in narrative. I, I, I knew a little bit more about Annihilus and Blastar in the negative zone because I, I did read the Kirby Lee FF run a year or so before I read this one for the first time. It hit for me pretty well. Who's your favorite character of these four issues, Matt? My favorite character I'm going to give to Ben Grimm. He just had a lot of good one-liners, and I like that he uh, saved those Moloid children. That was cool. Good on him. Yeah, yeah. Ben's commitment to saving the kids is always cool. Um, And it's a very Reed-focused series, but Hickman is very good at giving the other three stuff to do. And I also think that's one of the nice things about the FF2 is that even when you add the kids and the alien kids that the FF picks up, it's still a small enough cast as compared to X-Men and Avengers that it's kind of easier to do people more distinctively. Yeah, with only four characters, it's made it right. a lot for easier my favorite, to focus on those characters and not have to worry about every background and every every background character in the X-Men, every character that has to have some like other subplot going on that I have to keep up with. I felt like the main character of his X-Men stuff was Mr. Sinister. And he's the <laughs> one I learned the most. Or at least Sinister's a good audience, Surrogate it in a lot yes. of the Krakow yeah, that, that's era, a better way to put he's it. being yes, catty well matt we won't do this at any time soon because i don't want to overload you on hickman but i would like to do his avengers run at some point and uh my god 36 avengers matt 36 <laughs> avengers god, i can't even imagine that all right he gives you a nice chart of the team though that's very helpful <laughs> well i mean in the x-men books he has to give you like a summary of each character at the beginning so <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just to remind you, here's who's on this team. <laughs> so, oh man. So my favorite character of this, uh, these four issues is Sue. Uh, Sue's low-key, uh, maybe the best part about the Fantastic Four, just because she's both smart and funny. And so it's always nice to see see that combined. Um, Matt, you'll be happy to know, uh, or and maybe you'll be offended that I said you'll be happy to know, but <laughs> at least I'm happy to know that uh, next week we have another short week. It's just four issues. If the listeners want to follow along, it's 
would be the third original trade of the Hickman run, and it's just issues 579 to 582. This has been uh, Uncanny Treks covering uh, the Hickman. Right now it's the Hickman and Eaglesham Fantastic Four run, but I think Eaglesham drops off at some point. Although maybe he doesn't. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But anyway, we're covering the Hickman run. I'm Bob in Cascadia. That's Matt in the Southland. Thank you all for listening to Uncanny Treks. Thanks for listening.